Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number 10, Liberty Enlightening the World, What the Mother of Exiles Offers. And with me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's something in electoral history Luke doesn't know, it is not worth knowing. Luke. Well, I may be tired, poor. I don't know if I'm a huddled mass, but uh, like most people, yearning to breathe free uh, certainly rings true. Um, this is the only poem in this collection. Uh, it's a sonnet by uh, Emma Lazarus, who is uh, most of the authors of what we've read have been men. Um, not all, but most of them. Uh, this is a self-conscious work of art. It's a work of art about another work of art that is a political, both monumental and political, but also artistic creation. Uh, it is about a gift to the United States from a foreign country. It stands for the proposition that the United States as a propositional nation um, can bring in those from around the world, integrate them, make them into Americans, and that the universality of the, the desire for liberty is enough to overcome the cleavages of culture and history and turn one-time strangers uh, to America into full-throated Americans. Um, it's also, perhaps ironically, the most controversial of all the documents we've discussed when it comes to contemporary politics. Uh, you know, we've had the unedifying spectacle of the television media opining on the meaning of Emma Lazarus's new colossus as if it were uh, statute law or even constitutional, um, some part of the constitution. At this moment of elevated discussion of immigration, assimilation, integration and, uh, and the relationship of all of these things to liberty, uh, it's inevitable that we talk about the interconnectedness between culture as a foundation for liberty, right? That in order to have a nation with a national character that is liberty, one must have a nation and also the universality of the appeal of liberty. Those things sit in tension and Emma Lazarus is the new colossus. Uh, any 
21st century or 2019 address to that poem has to, I think, have that conflict in mind. That conflict wouldn't have been strange to Emma Lazarus though. She would have understood the cross-cutting currents of a desire for immigration, a desire for economic growth, skepticism of large numbers of foreign people moving in, holding together, not integrating into the United States, worries about uh, whether or not the institutions of the protect and perpetuate liberty can be protected without and perpetuated without themselves without a kind of Procrustean bed of cultural commitment to liberty itself. Who was Emma Lazarus and what were the kind of conflicts of the day that underpin her authoring of this, this poem? Well, I think, I think the two relevant facts about her, one is she is a New Yorker. Uh, her father belonged to and was one of the founders of the Union League Club which was a group of wealthy New Yorkers who supported the Union during the Civil War. They seceded from the Union Club, which would not expel its rebellious members, and they founded the Union League Club, which was targeted during the draft riots. Mm -hmm. The members of this club, some of their houses got attacked and burned because they were thought quite rightly to be supporters of this struggle, supporters of this war. So Mr. Lazarus, Emma's father, has a connection to this and a role in this and she's grown up in a city which had a horrific domestic disturbance, the draft riots. You know, Walt Whitman gets a letter about what's going on from his brother. Whitman is in uh, Washington. He, come, he comes from Brooklyn but he's in Washington at the time and his brother writes him and says, don't believe the official death figures. It was much worse. You know, the official death figure for the draft riots was like over a hundred. But they were going down Third Avenue with howitzers. I mm -hmm. mean, this was this was terrible. Thousands, stuff. thousands of people were almost. Uh, possibly, yeah. possibly. Um, rioters, bystanders, black people, soldiers. You know, the policemen, the whole thing. And m many of those rioters were Irish Americans who felt discriminated against as poor people, discriminated against as poor white people, discriminated against as Irish people. And the, as Roman Catholics. And as Roman Catholics, yeah. So the WASP Yankee elite is fighting this war to liberate black people but they're you know, drafting us to do it and we're being screwed. Well, the hell with it. We're going to push back now. That had been the draft riots. So that's, you know, that's 20 and 30 years old but she has you – know, lives in the city that lived through that. The other thing is that the Lazaruses were – an old Sephardic Jewish family. They had been in New York since it was a Dutch colony and they had done very well. Uh, they were part of the local elite. Elite anti-Semitism, uh, you know, of the kind that will result in Ivy League quotas and all that kind of thing has not really got going yet. It's beginning to but it hasn't gotten going yet. So for Emma Lazarus herself, there is a problem raised by the sudden appearance of hundreds and thousands of poor Jews from Eastern Europe who are being driven here by pogroms in Russia by crushing poverty. You know, and here they're coming in. There are so many of them that they have to set up uh, a special facility for uh, paupers on one of the islands in the East River. And Emma Lazarus, who is a 
a blue stocking. She's a, a literateur. She knows uh, – she corresponds with Emerson. She corresponds with Henry James. She wrote an article for the New York Times about the Jews on this uh, pauper's facility. And she uses some of the phrases in that article that she will use in her poem, The New Colossus, uh, that they're wretched refuse and all this kind of thing. So for her, you know, you have to imagine that this poses a personal problem to her. These are her co-religionists, but they're nothing like her. You know, she's from this wealthy, assimilated, Sephardic family. Here are Ashkenazic, uh, Yiddish-speaking newly arrived Jews from Eastern Europe, are they like me? And her decision is, I am of a country that will welcome these people. So yes, in that sense, they are like me. And the, uh, you know, the upshot of this, the result of this is the poem she writes when she is asked to be part of an effort to raise money for a pedestal. The pedestal will hold this great big statue that France has given, decided to give to the United States. The Statue of Liberty is in her mind as she's working on these things and working them through. It's also on the nation's mind because uh, it, it kind of comes over to the United States in a, in a, a Frankensteinian manner. Uh, they exhibit different parts of the statue in different parts of the country. Philadelphia, there are you know, obviously newspaper write-ups of it. And it takes a long time to put together a monumental statue like that. It, it doesn't take a long time to read the New Colossus because it's written as the quintessential sort of English uh, poetic form, which is the, the sonnet of rhyming couplets. What is she trying to do? Why a sonnet? Well. Uh, it, it's short and it's sweet. Uh, the form, the kind of sonnet she wrote was the Petrarchan, which is you have uh, eight lines, your octet, and then six lines, your sestet. And so Petrarchan sonnets tend to be, you know, proposition or question, then solution. You know, it's a very A, then B kind of thing. And so, so she starts off by um, introducing the statue and then she tells us what the statue says. So that's, that's the structure of, of her work. And, you know, of course, the, the, um, I think the best poetic feat in, in the poem, statues don't talk. I mean, until we get, you know, Disneyland and audio animatronic uh, Hall of Presidents. But no, statues don't talk. They don't live. They're, they're inanimate. But she says this statue cries out. It cries out. I mean, the message it has is so pressing that it bursts out of it. You know, cries out with silent lips. And then, what uh, the statue cries out is the welcome to your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. She's also the statue is also uh, rebuking the countries that these people come from. She starts off by saying. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp. And that reminded me of the Monroe Doctrine. All right, you know, keep your, keep your kings over there. We're not going to quarrel with those. We're, you know, we have friendly relations with, with Russia and Prussia and Austria and all the rest of it. But you keep all that stuff here. Don't try to import that 
to the Western Hemisphere. And so Emma Lazarus is saying, yes, keep your storied pomp, keep your, keep your kings. Your people who yearn to be free, we will take. The yearning to be free is, seems to me to be an essential part of the poem that gets just missed in most of these discussions because it's taken for granted by Lazarus in the poem that the people who are coming to the United States from these autocracies wish to be free. They wish to be in some sense participants in a, a contrary or alternative vision of, um, of self-government, of republican government. There's no notion that folks showing up, the huddled masses, want to reinstantiate a system of hereditary noble orders with a monarchy in the United States that, that at least from the matter – from the standpoint of what regime shall carry the day, they've assimilated before they step off the boat in Lazarus's telling. Is that, is that right? Is that the right reading of it? I think that's the right reading of the poem, certainly the right reading considering where the poem ends up. It, it ends up years after she wrote it and years after she died on the pedestal for which she was hoping to raise money uh, on which the Statue of Liberty was put. So uh, her, her mother of exiles, her statue which is welcoming the people yearning to be free, um, the poem is on the Statue of Liberty. It's not on the statue of something else. Now, how conscious were the people coming here of what this destination would mean? Obviously varying degrees. Uh, many people fleeing uh, poverty or persecution in Europe came to the Western Hemisphere and many of them went south and went to Buenos Aires and went to Argentina, which probably – no, certainly had a higher proportion of immigrants than the United States did. Uh, similar in absolute numbers in some years. I mean there were some years where more Italians absolutely were going to Argentina than came to the United States. And Argentina is a less populous country than the United States was, so the proportion is much greater. When you arrive in Argentina, you become Argentinian. And you know there are lots of good things about that. I, I don't want to uh, write it all off, but there's also a lot of political problems, particularly that will be part of that future and that legacy for the immigrants who happen to buy the ticket to that place. A lot of that actually persists in Argentine culture today. Um, you, you'll hear slang terms uh, for fans of the, the, the soccer team Boca, for instance, that refer to their uh, background as overwhelmingly Italian immigrants uh, coming to Buenos Aires and mm -hmm. settling. Um, the notion of assimilation is, is a highly contested one today. Um, you see it as, as a sine qua non as embedded in the symbolism of the uh, of the Statue of Liberty and there's a lot of symbolism there. It's also um, the case that uh, the demands are very explicitly political insofar as their demands to participate in this exercise of collective liberty. That's maybe easier to do at an age when the great European empires are still hereditary monarchies. Um, you know, the Ottoman Empire is still ruled over by essentially the same structure of uh, autocratic government. Yes, it has a bureaucratic system around it but from the standpoint of, of who's in charge of the Ottoman Empire, it's the same that it's been for 800 years almost, right? 
Is it difficult today when most of the countries in the world in one form or another elect their governments, when America is less distinctive from an institutional standpoint, is it harder today to simply lean on a commitment to liberty as a sufficient standard for integrating into the body politic? Well, I don't think so because a lot of those elective governments are pretty nominal. <laughs> uh, you know, East Germany called itself the Democratic Republic of East Germany. I don't think it was very democratic or very republican. No. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot of rhetoric and there's a lot of forms. Uh, Robert Mugabe kept being elected, right? You know, until until finally the army got got him out of there. So no, I understand what what you're saying. Um, it's it's not uh, the czar of all Russias or or the the caliph uh, that, that people are fleeing, but but I think in substance it's it's pretty similar in many cases. And what is it that they see when they show up to – and they're greeted by by the Statue of Liberty? I mean what is the symbolic sort of layering that they're encountering? Well, uh, it holds a torch. Uh, Kafka wrote a novel, America, which opens with the hero um, sailing into New York and he sees the Statue of Liberty and Kafka says it holds a sword. Now, I don't know whether he like didn't know that or whether that's a deliberately ironic mistake but she doesn't hold a sword. Uh, and Emma Lazarus is very, very clear about this. It's not like the old Colossus, the Colossus of Rhodes in the ancient world, which celebrated, you know, imperial military victories of uh, the pre-Christian uh, era. No, she holds a torch, and the symbolism of the statue. The the reason the statue was given to the United States, it was given by French small R Republicans, uh, who were delighted that uh, the second empire of Napoleon III had failed and that France could now be a republic once again, the third republic. They wanted to commemorate America as the fellow republic that France had helped liberate in 1776. I think the original target date for the whole project was the centennial celebration. They, they missed that but that's what they were aiming at. And the statue is holding – she's holding a tablet which says 1776 in, in Roman characters. There's also a broken chain at her feet. So it's also commemorating, very deliberately commemorating the emancipation of the slaves. This, this statue is the Statue of Liberty. It's not by accident. She is designed to, to reflect that and her formal name is Liberty Enlightening the World. So that – is the uh, the pedestal on which Lazarus's poem is finally put in uh, 1902 or 06? Now, you said finally. That's an important intervention. Things don't exactly go according to plan. Well, right. Uh, there, there, it took a long time to raise the money to build this pedestal. France was going to give us the statue, but then we had to we had to put it someplace, and we we picked out the island in New York Harbor, but. This is a vast statue and it needs an equally vast pedestal and there were efforts to raise money. Uh, one effort was to, to produce a kind of collector's item that would have um, written items and artistic items in it. And Lazarus was invited as a known uh, poet and literary person to make a contribution to this and that's why she writes The New Colossus. Um, some ex-presidents also wrote things. Uh, Mark Twain wrote, wrote something. It didn't raise a lot of money. 
uh, only $1,500, I think. It was just the, and the fundraising in general was just poking along. And finally, it was Joseph Pulitzer who was a, a, a press lord, a yellow press lord in New York. He really invented the modern tabloid and he made this a crusade. You know, he said, this is not a gift from the millionaires of uh, France. This is a gift from the people of France to the people of the United States. So the people have to pay for it. And so he encouraged people to send in however small contributions and he'd print your name. Even if you only huh. sent a dime, you know, you could read your name in Pulitzer's paper. You had given money to this thing. So he manages to raise, you know, a bundle and they're able finally uh, to do this. And then the statue goes up. Lazarus isn't there. She's died. Well, no. She's in Europe for her health and then she shortly thereafter dies. And then an edition of her poems is brought out by her sisters. She wanted the new Colossus to lead it off. The sisters stick it like on page 400. Uh, maybe a little envy at work there. Who knows? <laughs> but it's finally put on the statue by one of Lazarus's friends who, uh, whose surname is Schuyler. And she is, in fact, a descendant of Alexander Hamilton. But uh, she was the one who lobbied uh, to get the poem, The New Colossus, attached to the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, which I think completes the poem, explains the poem, explains who the mother of exiles is, completes Lazarus's thought. So this is uh, uniquely in this podcast, this is unique because it's a poem and it's also a poem on a statue. What do people miss when they read when they read the New Colossus today and try to read back into uh, that era what what people are fighting about today? Because I, when I hear when I hear these sort of asinine debates over the the poem and the statue, where you know you have one side of people saying, "Oh, well, it means an open door," and other saying, "Emma Lazarus wouldn't have." have supported birthright citizenship, I just sort of go, this is all completely silly. Like this is really not – this is not what this is about. What seems to me to be missing in a lot of those um, those discussions is citizenship, not as a category of legal formality but as a series of expectations and opportunities, uh, rights and responsibilities, uh, duties and protections. Lazarus is writing in a world where – First of all, almost all adult males at this point would have been veterans of the Civil War. Um, certainly she's – or she's raised in a world where they're all veterans of the Civil War. Um, you have it seems to me a much clearer sense of bygone generations of, um, of New Yorkers and their legacies, Georgina Schuyler being an example, intermingling and living in a city with new waves and new waves of immigrants who are being – oftentimes through the you know, patronage, patronage systems of the large political parties integrated into the political system of the age and turned into Americans. Um, why is it that we can't even – it's almost as if we can't get out of our own way to start talking about how people become Americans today through liberty. We're so hung up on these questions of legal formalism and, and sort of odd bits of oblique cultural commentary, that the debate over immigration strikes me as truncated compared to the assumptions that underpin what Lazarus is saying. We have to read Lazarus. It's a pretty good sonnet. Read it. I mean if you disagree with it, come up with a better one. <laughs> 
It'll be hard. Yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere. No, um, no, no. Uh, there's something incredible, too, about having the statue in the harbor. Um, people showing up on ships, sailing by it, saying, sailing past it. I've been on a little boat cruise and gone past it. It really is incredible, especially in the evening when you go past the Statue of Liberty. In the 21st century, most people show up on airplanes. Uh, you can still see it. You can still see it when you're landing at, at, at LaGuardia or Kennedy if the plane makes the right pass. If it makes that pass over the harbor and then up the East River, you still see it out there. It's part of this whole here it all is and, and that's, that's the first thing. Before you get to the great skyline of Manhattan, there it is. I wonder sometimes if we should start putting small statues of liberty or uh, you know, copies of the, great, of the New Colossus in uh, – you know, international arrival sections of American airports because it, it, it feels like we do now. We, we don't have the same experience of a crossing, a passage, a change. And I wonder if to some extent the technology has changed the, the epistemic experience of becoming American for new Americans. I, I, you know, every new American I meet is overjoyed to have become an American. I've, I don't think I've ever met anyone who is just sort of blasé mm -hmm. about becoming an American mm -hmm. citizen. So for the people who are undergoing the experience, the, the power of it is still there. For those of us who were born Americans watching people become new Americans, I wonder if we miss something because we don't see this ritual process of going past the new Colossus that's sort of mm -hmm. almost like an, an airplane, uh, you know, uh, tarmac manager waving people in with, yeah, the, yeah. with the lamp. Well, you know, one, one theme of this book, uh, I, I pick out 13 episodes and we're doing 13 podcasts, but uh, you have to keep coming up with them. Uh, and if you have a free country, there's a likelihood that you will, but it's, it's not guaranteed. It's not promised. So maybe for the age of, of, of Twitter and social media, uh, we need a new new Colossus. Uh, I wonder if we can trust the French to come up with us. <laughs> maybe they'll yeah. help us. They're, you know, they're, they're our great frenemies. They, they, all the time they're not abusing us. They're, they're loving us and studying us. Yeah, I think it's because we're so much like them that we don't get along very well. <laughs> right. um, the... What is the you know there there are these echoes of France because we are the two great revolutionary republics of the of the 18th century the United States and France and yet the Statue of Liberty seems like such a quintessentially American thing even though it comes from France what what is the kind of echoing resonance of of this relationship between the two sister republics the one that succeeded and survived the one that keeps going through these spasmodic fits of autocracy right. and regeneration into a republic and then collapsing onto, into itself. What's the dialogue there? Well, I, you know, I think one, one theme that, it, that is striking in French history, that French politics is a span and it has an extreme left and it has an extreme right and it always has had. But there also is uh, a thread that is genuinely devoted to liberty and genuinely admiring of America. I mean we see this in Lafayette. We see this in Tocqueville. I mean for all his – you know, his reservations and his awareness of practicalities, he's, he's 
you know, he's hoping that democracy does work and that's why he comes here to study it. And we see this in the Frenchman who, who built the Statue of Liberty. There was uh, Edouard de la Boullier was the intellectual who got the project going. Uh, Frederick Bartholdy was the sculptor who made it. Uh, I learned writing this that the insides of the Statue of Liberty were by Gustave Eiffel, mm. you know, who would make another famous tall structure. So uh, there is also that in France and that keeps going on and it's, it's an unkillable element in French politics and French thinking. George, George Clemenceau comes over to the United States in 1864 or 1865 to help the Union cause, I think as a, as a, as a, a nurse or some sort of physician um, and that sort of radicalizes his own republican ideals that he then you know, takes back to France. A lot of the things we've seen have come from America, been exceptional in America, gone out into the world and changed the way the rest of the world does things. America's view of immigration is probably one that really hasn't. Um, if we see the proposition of assimilation, integration and not social unity but passable social harmony through democratic republican politics as a unique American idea, certainly it is not an American export that is worked out. European countries um, of all sorts seem perfectly willing to have permanent uh, non-citizen, you know, what the Athenians would call medic classes. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why is this – on the one hand, of course, it's a great point of pride for a lot of Americans and that it remains an exceptional element of our character. But also from the standpoint of the universalizing claims of liberty that we've talked about on this podcast, it's a failure in that we have not created uh, particular places devoted to general principles capable of integrating anyone into their particularity in the service of that genera gen generality. I've heard I've heard someone joke. You mean elsewhere? Elsewhere, yeah. I've, I heard well, someone joke that the the Americans became Prussians so at, after World War II, so the Prussians would become Americans. Except they don't actually integrate in the same way that the United States can integrate vast numbers of people. They're well, still Prussians. Well, yeah, but look, our job, our first job, is to take care of ourselves and to do this for ourselves. And we hope that liberty enlightens the world. And you know, we have seen in the Monroe Doctrine a concrete step we took, and we'll see in later podcasts some other steps we take. But uh, the choice is up to the world. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.